you go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in the second half of verse 36. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from the Jews. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes And understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge them. The world, but to save the world, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a a glorious word, and uh, we need help understanding it. We need your Holy Spirit to come and illumine our hearts and minds that we may comprehend what is here. We need your Holy Spirit to come and humble us before your word that we may receive what it teaches about you, about your sovereignty, about the stubbornness of our hearts, which loves the glory of man at times more than the glory that comes from God. We need help to see that Jesus is our only way to fellowship with you. And we need all of our unbelief driven from us with these words that we might behold him in his glory as he is. So send him and give us grace together as we walk through this passage and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we will celebrate the Lord's Supper again together. And this supper is one that Jesus instituted the night that he was betrayed. Chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, which we finished this morning, brings us right up to that particular night 
when Jesus was betrayed. John has walked us through the last three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. And right here in chapter 12, everything is drawing to a close before Jesus enters that last night with his disciples. The night of his betrayal, which is what the next five chapters consist of. That last night before Jesus' death. But before Jesus enters that night of betrayal, John summarizes the effect Jesus' ministry has on his own people, the Jews. It didn't close with, with lots of happy songs of celebration and the conversion of the nation of Israel. It looked more like sweeping unbelief and rejection by Israel. There were some who believed, even if half-heartedly and with all sorts of reservations and qualifications, but for the most part, the Jews were full of unbelief when it came to Jesus. In many ways, John has, has brought us full circle to how he began his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But John does something even more than just summarize the massive unbelief in Israel. He tells us how to interpret the unbelief in light of Jesus' glory and in light of God's sovereign plan to save us. He tells us how to interpret the unbelief in light of Jesus' glory and in light of God's sovereign plan to save us. John doesn't leave us in the dark about why Israel rejected their Messiah, he, he gives us a context, a framework, a theology for understanding their rejection. And I want to point this out to you in four statements about the Jewish unbelief that's mentioned in our passage. Number one, the unbelief misses the glory of Jesus. The unbelief misses the glory of Jesus. We see this first in verse 37. John writes, Though Jesus had done so many signs or miracles before them, they still did not believe in him. What were the signs meant to reveal throughout Jesus' earthly ministry? I'll give you a clue from the first sign that he performed. The wedding, uh, uh, the changing of the water into wine at Cana. And another clue from the last sign he performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus changed the water in, into wine in Cana, the Bible says this in chapter 2, verse 11 of John's Gospel. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Note that he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. That was his first sign. Then right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is his last sign, Jesus says this to Martha. Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed you would see the glory of God in his raising of Lazarus. 
God gave Jesus signs to perform so that when he performed them, his glory as son of God would be displayed and people would believe. And not just believe, hey, that man over there performed a sign, but actually believe, hey, that man is God's only son. The signs were like a sunbeam that pierces through the clouds. You can look at the sunbeam and stop there, or you can look along the sunbeam to see the blazing fireball called the sun, some 92 million miles away. Similarly, you can look at Jesus' signs and stop there, or you can look along Jesus' signs and actually see him for who he truly is, the glorious Son of God. Where the Jews go wrong is that the large majority of them never look along the signs to see and behold the glory of God's Son, even though He's been telling them to all along. Right? My Father is working until now, and I am working. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Believe the works that I do, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's told them, but they don't believe Jesus' words. And so the signs never budge their hardened hearts toward genuine saving faith in God's Son. They miss Jesus' glory because they refuse to believe Jesus' words. A few believe, like his disciples, but the majority of Israel misses him. Another way the Jews miss Jesus' glory is that they fail to see in Jesus what their own Bibles reveal about his glory. In the next few verses, John quotes from two different places in the prophet Isaiah. The first quotation you see there, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a quotation from the first verse in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the chapter... In our Bibles, where God promises to remove his people's sin through a suffering servant. You likely know it well. God's servant would be wounded for our transgressions, our law-breaking. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would bear the sin of many. And in doing so, God would give his guilty people a right standing before him. The New Testament tells us that that happened when Jesus died on the cross. He is the suffering servant who bore our sins that we might gain a right standing with God. Jesus was crushed for our law-breaking that we might gain peace with God. But Isaiah tells us a couple of significant things about this suffering servant that fit what John is developing in our passage. I mentioned this last week, but when we looked at verse 32 there... Jesus saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What we saw there was that Jesus is using the language of lifting up to talk about his exaltation on the cross. And that language of being lifted up comes from Isaiah. Whenever God promised that his glory alone would be above all the other nations, it would be lifted up, it would be exalted and seen for what it is above all other nations. And then amazingly, the only place... 
It's not applied to God or His temple mount in Isaiah is in Isaiah 52.13 where it's applied to His own servant. And Isaiah 52.13 is the introduction to Isaiah 53 on the suffering servant. It says this in Isaiah 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So God's servant will be seen as glorious, high, lifted up, exalted. But then get this, when God's servant shows up to deliver God's people from their sins, he would take such a humble posture among men, such a lowly position that they would despise him. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. The servant's worth and the servant's value didn't change when he humbled himself. He was still worthy of exaltation when he would come. It's just that nobody else would recognize his worth and his value when he would come. Now hold that in your mind, because we get two quotations here from Isaiah. Hold that in your mind, and then notice that John also quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart and so forth. And that comes from Isaiah 6, verse 10. And Isaiah 6 is the chapter in our Bibles where God reveals himself to Isaiah from his heavenly throne room in the midst of the heavenly temple. Isaiah sees the Lord and he says the Lord was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one seraph would cry out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now bring that vision of God's majestic glory together with the vision of God's humble servant because John says in verse 41, Isaiah spoke of these things, think Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Meaning the vision of God in Isaiah 6. And the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 are related because they're both speaking about the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The king on the throne in Isaiah 6 is the servant on the ground suffering in Isaiah 53. And both of these things come together beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word, remember, who became flesh. His heavenly glory may be hidden as he stooped to the role of a servant and came to earth, but that didn't make Jesus less glorious. In fact, it put even more of his glory on display, like the glory of his humility. 
and the glory of his compassion towards sinners and the glory of his patience with scoundrels and the glory of his love toward a fallen world. But the Jews are missing the glory of this servant. They don't see that the one who has shown with his father's glory for eternity has become a servant to rescue them from all of, its, from all of their sin and its consequences. They miss the glory of Jesus because much like the Jews did in Isaiah's day, they refused to believe God's words and what they revealed about him. Isaiah spoke of Jesus' glory in the throne room and he spoke of Jesus' glory as the suffering servant and the majority of Israel rejected his message save but a handful, a remnant. The same was true for Jesus It's just that the one seated so high on heaven's throne was now telling his people these things, not merely through another man like Isaiah. He was telling them these things as a man. Unbelief misses Jesus' glory because it refuses to listen to God's spoken word, like the word through Isaiah, and to God's living word, namely Jesus That's the whole point of verses 45 to 50 to remind us that Jesus speaks the very words of God and is himself the very self-revelation of God. Whoever sees me, he says, sees him who sent me. I've not spoken on my own authority, he says, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, You see it? Unbelief misses Jesus' glory because it refuses to listen to Jesus' words. And how detrimental it will be to us if we do not give attention to Jesus' words. Verse 48 says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. God gave us words in the scriptures like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And he has given us The Word made flesh that we would not miss His glory in the Son. And may we give due attention to the Word every day that we might not overlook Jesus' glory like the Jews did. The Jews miss His glory here because they don't want to listen to Jesus' words. But why is that? What's even deeper than that? If the eternal Lord of the universe has chosen to manifest His glory by sending His Son to take to Himself a human nature so that people see God, then why have they so easily dismissed Him? Why don't they want to listen to Jesus' words? That brings us to our second statement about the unbelief of the Jews. Namely, the unbelief loves the glory of man. The unbelief loves the glory of man. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and and spoke of him. But there are some mentioned here who have seen glimpses of Jesus' glory and refuse to speak of him. And their refusal to speak of Jesus' glory exposes the root of the unbelief infecting all of Israel and everybody who sits in unbelief. Unbelief is rooted in a love for the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God. Look at it with me in verses 41 and 43. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. 
But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Because of that note right there, I don't take John to mean that these authorities had genuine saving faith. They had the same kind of spurious and fickle faith that we've seen among the Jews throughout the Gospel of John. There's something attractive about Jesus to them. Initially, but not enough that makes them stick around when he starts saying hard things. There's something drawing them to Jesus initially, but they're not willing to take his side when the Jews want him dead. That doesn't mean they'll continue having this spurious and fickle faith, but it's certainly what they have here, a sort of faith that withholds full allegiance to Christ. And why is it this way? Why is part of them still disbelieving? Why are the Pharisees so scary? Why is the loss of reputation in society so haunting to them? Verse 43 tells us, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's the root of unbelief in Israel. And it's the second time that we've seen it explicitly exposed. Jesus did it another time in chapter 5, verse 44, and it comes across even stronger. He told the Jews there, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? In other words, it's not even possible for you to believe as long as you're infatuated with each other's glory. Instead of the glory that comes from the only God. Their failure to see Jesus' glory is not just an intellectual problem. It's not just an, oh man, if we would have just put Isaiah 6 together with Isaiah 53, we'd have had this whole thing figured out. It's not that kind of problem. Their missing of Jesus' glory is fundamentally a moral problem. It's a what I love problem. What I crave kind of problem. Right at unbelief's ugly core is the love for the glory of man over the glory of God. It's elevating the opinions of others over who God is and what He says is true. It's elevating the creature over the Creator. It's an attempt to stand the entire cosmos on its head. And that's not just a Jewish problem. That's a universal problem that's been present since the serpent tempted our first parents in the garden and a problem for which we all stand guilty in Adam. Apart from God's grace, we are lovers of the glory of man over the glory of God. The approval of others feels so good to our sinful flesh, which covets the praise and attention and the acceptance of others over the acceptance that comes alone through Christ. But what we must see here is that the desire for human praise is always opposed to the glory of Christ. Because the desire for human praise ultimately says, I am the glorious one. I must preserve my image before others. I must please everybody else. I must win their praise. 
I must keep my status before them. I must be the impressive one. I must keep others from seeing my weaknesses. I must put on faces that people don't see my hurt. I must hide my shame and prove that I am great. That love for the glory of man not only missed Jesus' glory, it made him bleed and it hung him on a cross. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews who love the glory of man over the glory of God is horrific because it blasphemes and condemns the only one who is truly glorious. That ought to sober us the next time we desire the praise of others or go fishing for compliments or present a facade instead of the real us. Or, pre- or pretend like we don't need anybody's help when we really do. Or get jealous when someone else gets more attention on social media than you do. Love for the glory of man will blind you to Jesus' glory. And you will miss him altogether as the majority of Israel missed him when he came. If we think about it back to Isaiah 6, there was no question in Isaiah's mind who was glorious when he saw the vision of the throne room. All he could say was, I am lost! And pronounces curses on himself. Woe is me! He was totally undone before the glory of the Lord of hosts. And those things were written in Isaiah 6, and these things are written in John 12, so that we don't miss Jesus' glory. But see him for who he is. He is the glorious king of the universe who became a servant to take away your sins. To forgive you of your desire for human praise. To forgive you of all your loving of the glory of man over the glory of God. That's why he came. If you listen to his words, if you trust what he says, then your eyes will be open to see Jesus for who he really is. And in seeing his glory as the only Son of God, you will find eternal life and you will be forever changed. We have to keep going. The unbelief, this is number three, the unbelief was part of God's sovereign plan to save us. You see, there's more to this story of unbelief. To this point, we've seen that unbelief misses the glory of Jesus. Statement one, that unbelief is rooted in love for the glory of man. Statement two, now statement three, the unbelief was part of God's sovereign plan to save us. Let's let's go back now to the quotations from Isaiah in verses 37 to 40 and look more carefully at their content and how John quotes them. Verse 37... Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that, or better, in order that, the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That's the first indication that tells us the unbelief was part of God's sovereign plan. They didn't believe for this purpose that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And what is that word? It's a word that prophesied of their unbelief. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who in Israel 
would believe that God would choose to save the world this way by sending a servant to suffer so greatly unto death. Even if I tell them about the servant, who's going to believe this? It's kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to to Gentiles. But this sort of response to Jesus was part of God's plan. He even revealed it in Scripture. Then verses 39 and 40 give us an even stronger statement that the unbelief was part of God's plan. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, their unbelief was necessitated by God's plan revealed in Scripture. Nothing could happen to the contrary of God's plan as He revealed it beforehand in Scripture. The sweeping unbelief among the Jews is not an accident. It was part of God's sovereign plan. And you can read more about that plan in Romans 9 through 11 when you get home. Don't have time to go there today. So God has planned the unbelief in Israel... He is blinding their spiritual eyes and hardening their heart by leaving them to their own corrupt desires and by leaving them in their love for the glory of man, just as he said it would happen. We must remember that we're not dealing with morally neutral people here. We're dealing with people who are already sinfully bent on loving the glory of man. If anybody comes to love the glory of God, it's because God transforms them by his grace. We saw this some already in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. The only difference between those who believe and those who don't believe is the new birth in those who believe. We also saw it in chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. The only reason why some people come to the light and others don't is because of a work of God in their hearts. In both places, we find that the world is morally opposed to Jesus by nature unless God in mercy chooses to deliver. So the hardening of which he speaks here is a judicial one. God is leaving them to their own devices. He is leaving them to their love for the glory of man. And he's doing it in accordance with the sovereign purposes already revealed in the prophet Isaiah. The Jews can become nothing but hardened against the truth unless God acts upon their souls and changes them from the inside out. Their unbelief is their own and God has planned it for his purposes. That doesn't mean God is sinful to ordain the unbelief of the Jews. We know from other places in Scripture that God cannot be tempted with evil. The situation also doesn't mean that the Jews are relieved of their responsibility for their sinful unbelief. Against Jesus. We've already seen in verse 43 that their unbelief is rooted in a moral disposition that's utterly opposed to Jesus and also condemnable since it elevates the glory of man above God's glory. So God is able to ordain this unbelief without himself being sinful and cannot himself be blamed for their unbelief. The Jews are still responsible. What John is getting at by setting the Jews' unbelief in the context of God's sovereignty is that Jesus isn't approaching his death 
by mere accident. He didn't, be, he didn't come to this night of betrayal by accident. He came to it by design. He has come in accordance with his father's sovereign plan, even a sovereign plan that was spelled out very clearly in the Old Testament. The mounting unbelief of the Jews will lead to his suffering under Roman law and his cursed death on a cross reserved for criminals, and none of it is escaping God's plan. In fact, God's plan necessitate that matters play out this way. Even when we get to Judas's betrayal of Jesus in chapter 13, this is chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, when we get there, we're told that Judas will betray Jesus in order to fulfill the scripture that he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. God's plan extends down to the very details of even Judas sharing a piece of bread with Jesus. The unbelief is mentioned as part of God's plan to show us that Jesus will die as part of God's plan. The cross is God's doing, and we must always view the cross as God's doing. I've been in some conversations recently with a fella and his girlfriend over the gospel. I met him at Starbucks. We've been been meeting together for lunch here and there. And one of the fundamental things that he just does not understand is that the cross is God's doing. He will go back again and again to to things like, Jesus' mission was a failure among the Jews. I mean, they they hung him up on a stick. Jesus' death was just the result of some political things working itself out in Israel. He's no, no big deal. But the fundamental piece of the gospel we must always remember is that God put Jesus on the cross for our sins. Yeah, they might have wanted him dead for political reasons, but God is overseeing all of it. So it's been good to speak this to him. The cross is God's doing. The unbelief here was horrific in and of itself. It missed Jesus' glory. What was even worse was what the unbelief led to, the crucifixion of the all-glorious Christ. But what John wants us to see, or even better, what God wants us to see, these are his inspired words, is that Jesus' cross was not merely an accident of history, but a gift from a sovereign God who loves sinners and has put a plan in place to rescue them. A good plan. A strange plan, but a good plan. We would have never thought of this plan. We love the glory of man too much. And even when he told his people the plan, they didn't believe it either. Why? They love the glory of man too much. But this was the plan, to subject his eternal son to the evils of this world that the son created, that God might offer him as a sacrifice for the world's sins. And this is very good news for us. If God is sovereign over sin, over the sin and unbelief, when Jesus heads to the cross, does it not speak volumes about his love for us that he still offered him up for our sins on the cross? While we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Saturating the events surrounding Jesus' death is sweeping unbelief, mounting rejection of God's only Son, love for the glory of man all over the place, and God still offers up Jesus on our behalf. He ordains His Son endure the unbelief, and His Son willingly subjects Himself to the unbelief so that we might be forgiven for the very rebellion that put His Son on the cross to begin with. That's the good news if you believe it. Forgiveness of sins despite my rebellion is good news. Moreover, if God is sovereign over the evil when Jesus heads to the cross, then that means evil has never been in ultimate control of this universe and that evil will not and cannot ultimately prevail in this universe. God is in control of evil, and if He controls it, then He can ultimately do something about it. If God is sovereign over every darkness leading up to Jesus' death, the greatest event in history, and then that means He's sovereign over the darkness that we're even experiencing now. And, on top of that, He's already given an answer for it in the death and resurrection of His Son. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The theology of Genesis 50, verse 20, can be written over this entire account of Jesus' suffering and death. You meant these things against me for evil, but God intended them for good, that He might spare the lives of many. The darkness of the world seemed to swallow up Jesus' body on the cross. And the darkness even pretended to win, not realizing that in Jesus' death, the darkness had just sealed its fate once and for all. God was actually in control. And three days later, He raised Jesus from the dead and declared victory over the darkness of sin, death, and the devil. And He now reigns from heaven, promising to bring all He secured on the cross to its final completion in a new heaven and a new earth on the last day where there will be no darkness at all for Jesus' followers. More than that, Jesus' victory at Calvary means the darkness of this present age can hold no ultimate sway over God's elect, Galatians 1.4. It can only serve God's purposes in Christ, Revelation 6-17. through 17. And when the darkness produces suffering, God has purposes to produce more endurance in His saints, Romans 5, which then serves our conformity to Christ, Romans 8, which then adds to our present joy, James 1 which then increases our volume of worship in heaven when God defeats it totally, 2 Corinthians 4, which then proves to a watching world that God is the supreme treasure in the universe. Psalm 73 and Hebrews 10. The darkness will not win in the last day and it is not winning now despite all appearances. The sovereignty of God in the death of Jesus Christ teaches us that all of history is upheld by an all-wise and sovereign creator who is directing history toward a very good ending. When everything holy will be exalted and lifted up in His kingdom, and when everything evil will be punished outside His kingdom. If you believe in Him, if you believe God offered up Jesus on the cross according to His sovereign plan and His sovereign will to save the world, then you get the kingdom 
and you get it even now through the Holy Spirit. Just by believing, just by trusting that God did this, you get the kingdom now. If you don't trust this word, then you'll miss the kingdom now and you will miss it on the last day when you're cast out forever with the darkness. But here's even more good news. If God is sovereign over the unbelief that led to Jesus' death, then that means He is also sovereign to change your unbelieving heart into one that believes. If this passage about God's sovereignty over people's hearts has driven you to despair, then you're in a good place to see that your only help will come by miracle from above. It's called the new birth. God's sovereignty over unbelief means we can cry to Him for help to change our state of unbelief into one of belief. Whether you're a believer struggling to believe or an unbeliever, God has the power to overcome every rebel desire in us and change them all into desires for, his, for Christ and His glory. These things were not written to leave you speculating whether or not your unbelief is unchangeable. First of all, it's at the height of arrogance to put yourself in the place of God, pretending that you can actually see these things, which are only in His hands. Second of all, it shows that you have a warped view of God, as if He's playing tricks with you about what He's really like. And third of all, He's told you exactly what He's like and why He's written these words about Jesus. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in His name. Chapter 20, verse 31. And He also says that whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. And this actually leads to our fourth statement about the unbelief. The unbelief need not remain in you. The unbelief in you need not remain, whether you're a disciple or not. Knowing all this about God's sovereignty over the unbelief in Israel, Jesus appeals once again for them to believe in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness Think of the unbelief in Israel. Darkness. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. How do you escape the darkness? By believing in Jesus. This is exactly how the apostles pull together the sovereignty of God in Jesus' death and the responsibility of man to believe throughout the book of Acts. I'll give you two examples. In Acts 2, verse 23, Peter declares this in his sermon. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see what he's telling the Jews? 
This was predestined and you did it to Jesus. And by the time he finishes his sermon, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. God changes unbelievers into believers through the preaching of his sovereign plan in Christ. Paul says nearly the same thing in Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 26 to 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, think Isaiah, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. (laughs) That is breathtaking. Can you imagine how this preaching sits on those who actually nailed Jesus to the cross? You fulfilled the scriptures by condemning Jesus. You know what that message does? It rips your inner pride to shreds and exposes that you are desperately in need of radical transformation that is out of your control That even though you had read the Bible all along, where God had spelled these things out, you didn't get it, and you even missed your Messiah when you hung him on the tree. It is devastating to your pride, especially when heard rightly and with the Spirit's help. And then Paul comes in and says this, after after he's preaching these things to them, He says, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The message of God's sovereign plan to save the world by offering up his glorious son at the hands of sinful men is not meant to confuse us. It's meant to humble us before His grace that we might find the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus alone. It's meant to show us that we would have never come up with this plan. We love the glory of man too much. It's meant to show us that the only one who had this plan is God alone. There are no no other ways that we might be saved. God roots out our unbelief not by keeping things about Himself from you, but by revealing what's true about Himself for you. And that's what this book is about. God revealing Himself just as He is that we might be saved. He is the only sovereign over the universe and He has given up His only Son into the hands of sinners so that He would become a sacrifice for your sins and offering for your unbelief. I mentioned Paul saying that Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews a minute ago. And he was folly to Gentiles, but he also includes one other group. We preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. So therefore, let us believe in Him. Let us remember God's sovereign kindness in Jesus' death as we come now even to the Lord's Supper. And let us put all our trust in God to overcome our belief by His mighty power and grace so freely given through the cross. Ask God to change you by His Spirit this morning so that you will learn to love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. One of the Spirit's roles is to take the cross of Christ and apply its saving power to your inner man, your your inner person, your heart, so that you love the glory of God in Christ over everything else. He helps us see Jesus for who He truly is. Ask God daily to fill you with His Spirit that Jesus will be forever precious to you. And then look again to the work God will finish at Jesus' return, when by His sovereign power all who have chosen to follow Jesus will never sin again. In an instant, God will take away every ounce of unbelief for Jesus' followers and fill us with nothing but forever affections for Jesus and His glory. And that should be great encouragement to you in the weeks ahead as you are battling your own sin, God will triumph in the end over it. And the cross tells you that already. The power of sin has already been snapped. The consequences has already been dealt with in the cross of Jesus. And we're waiting a day when He takes it all away forever. Right? I love the song that we sing sometimes. That the church will be saved. Saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes to do that in us, church, once and for all. If you have yet to believe, then my word to you is that of Jesus Himself. Believe in Him that you may not remain in darkness. Submit, to your, submit yourself to this sovereign God who has provided for you a sufficient sacrifice in the person of Jesus. If God knew all of the sin that was leading to Jesus' death, then He knew of all of your sins when He put Jesus on that tree and He didn't miss a single one of them when He poured out His wrath there. Submit yourself to Him. And you will be saved. You will find forgiveness of your sins and mercy and healing. And He will have you as His own forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for Your sovereignty and the hope that we find there. I pray that You would continue to give us encouragement from these words that we might live with confidence that what you've begun in us, you will continue and bring to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.